from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. My guest today is a writer, director, and screenwriter. The mind-bending psychological horror film that was produced from her screenplay, Spoonful of Sugar, is streaming on Shudder right now. She's led a very interesting life, and you'll see her love of film shine through in everything she says and in every aspect of her life. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Leah St. Marie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 30th day of March 2023. I was searching around on Shudder for something for me and my fiance to watch, and we both love psychological horror, so we jumped on the film Spoonful of Sugar. The story premise was dark and surreal, taking a lot of dramatic turns which left us unsure of what was real and what was actually motivating the characters, but it was all tied up nicely at the end, so I had to find out who wrote this mind-bending story. So, thank you for being here and giving myself and my audience the chance to take a look into your dark mind. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. They say the most pleasant people write horror, so hopefully that's true. Absolutely. So, the story is about a young woman with a sordid past that is applying for a job to be kind of a healthcare provider for a couple's sick child. One of the important factors for this story to work is isolation because the couple lives in a very remote area. Do you find that when it comes to psychological horror, isolated settings elevate the horror more than an urban or suburban setting? And if so, why do you think that is? I think there's definitely elements to it. Like look at the invisible man, right? Mm -hmm. You isolate a woman, not just isolate in a geographic sense, but isolate in a communal sense. Mm -hmm. And then you're only dealing with the point of view of what that character is and is going through. Mm -hmm. So you don't know, is the narrative trustworthy or not trustworthy? And so you're always guessing what is and isn't reality. Yeah, you kind of have to rely on whether or not they're first of all sane mm -hmm. and second of all being tricked by something themselves. Exactly. Okay. Well, in the story, the young woman is an orphan and has been through several foster parents and very toxic relationships. There's a scene where she's talking to her therapist about wanting to be a better mother than the mothers that she sees when she watches them with their kids at the park. Did you plug in an inherent fear of abandonment into her character? And if so, 
How did that fear manifest in her interactions with the different characters like Rebecca and Jacob mm -hmm. and her therapist? I don't think that she is thinking necessarily about abandonment so much as wanting a family to belong to, but it has to be the right family and the perfect family. And she has to have power over that family. Mm. Okay. And I don't know how to ask the question without delving into spoilers, but based on the type of foster parents that she's had, mm -hmm. what was it that molded her into that mindset? So I did my master's thesis on female serial killers. A lot of the psychology that I researched for a year went into Millicent's character. Oh. And so it's it's not necessarily like you're thinking in terms of how a normal brain functions, but Millicent doesn't have a normal brain. She has the brain of a psychopath that has been pushed to become a serial killer. So there's a default setting of being a psychopath or is or psychopaths made or at least in this sense like oh boy you're you're stepping into it um, <laughs> i think that there you can be born a psychopath and not become a serial killer right mm -hmm. because you have a pathology that is a lack of empathy and there's no curing that it's just the way that the brain functions or you can become one through like frontal lobe trauma or extreme trauma and not saying that people with extreme trauma become this, but for this specific character, yes. Mm. Okay. So your example of frontal lobe trauma, if there is actual physical impact like trauma that can structurally affect the brain and cause it as well. Is that? Yeah. You can suffer frontal lobe trauma and nothing happens to you, or you can suffer it and then you're one in a billion and something happens to you. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, as you see from the movie trailer, the protagonist Millicent takes a lot of very powerful LSD, which I think, what, what is it? Mm -hmm. LSD 25? Is that the, mm -hmm. the pure good stuff? Uh, the good stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ultimate title. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, the rocket fuel of the LSD, mm -hmm. as it were. Taking it as a treatment for depression, which is actually done in real life. And a mind-altering hallucinogenic is obviously great fodder for a psychological horror story. Mm -hmm. So based on what you've revealed to us as far as the inner machinations of her mind, what was it about the effects of the drug that she was drawn to? Did it actually help her depression or? Uh, I'm going to answer this in kind of a weird way. So mm -hmm. when I originally wrote the script, it was a period piece set in the 60s and I was doing research on... You know, you had Ken Kesey, who was doing LSD and was an advocate. And this is before it was banned by the government. And you had all these scientists coming in and testing to see how it works on our military. And then they defunct the project. And I thought this was so fascinating that they were actually using LSD on the military and on children to see its effects. But for Millicent, I think she's using it because she wants everything to be perfect and it isn't perfect. Like in her mind, if she has a desk in front of her and one thing is out of place on that desk, she can't have a conversation. She can't focus on anything else until that is put back and everything is in order. Mm. So her life is everything has to be in order and has to go this way. So she's a very powerful character that seeks to have power and she uses LSD to maintain that in some capacity. But she can't just do that by taking it herself, right? She has to have other people involved? 
No, Johnny was kind of a special case. Because it seems like if you were the only one taking the LSD, LSD can kind of make the natural person, it can turn things very chaotic. But I mm -hmm. guess for a psychopath, they don't really have fear, do they? I think it's only empathy that they're lacking. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically the different frame of reference, I guess she would be able to tame the effects of the hallucinogen, unlike a normal person that, you know, may feel like they're a little bit out of control. That could be the case. But keep in mind, this is a hyper-realistic fairy tale of a movie. So mm. the normal rules of reality just don't apply. Mm, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Which makes it fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, the young boy that you alluded to earlier that Millicent is given charge of has quite a few medical problems that at first they seem like he's got a lot of allergies, mm -hmm. but then it almost seems kind of like there's like a Munchausen by proxy syndrome thing going mm -hmm. on. So Millicent immediately has some very strong maternal feelings toward the boy. Are the maternal instincts real or are they more of a codependency or is it kind of intertwined what you were talking about earlier about her needing a sense of control? I think, I mean, I don't want to put opinion on the audience in their own interpretation, which was probably a brilliant interpretation of this because that's what art is all about. I would say when I wrote it, and feel free to disagree with me, mm -hmm. but when I wrote it, it was definitely she had this maternal instinct for Johnny and this family and trying to overtake this family was something new for her because of the child component. And I think like motherhood as a theme is all through this movie, like Rebecca wants to be the best mother that she can be. Mm. And Millicent is trying to supersede that. And so it's not by accident that she kind of supersedes that she is willfully trying to undermine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of the mother, Rebecca, who seems to be the source of the Munchausen-like treatment of the boy, is very domineering. Mm-hmm. Was she in any way modeled after Jung's devouring mother archetype? And can you tell us a little bit about the development of her character? Because I know I can ask a novelist mm -hmm. how they develop a character and they have this particular method, but I've never really asked a screenwriter. Yeah, um, I love that your mind went there. It wasn't intentional. Like I have a background in sociology, but it wasn't intentional. Maybe it was subconscious that she is. But mm -hmm. my ultimate thing was, both of these women are fighting against the theme and the thesis of what would you do for family and what are the stakes and what are the limits of that definition for each of them. And I think the answer is everything. You do everything for family. And Rebecca is functioning under that premise always. Yeah. And you mentioned the possibility of it being subconscious. Maybe Jung was really right. You, you yeah. integrate. You integrate with the shadow and produce this character. This is your integration. This yeah. is your individuation. <laughs> yeah. Well, the husband seemed like he was uh, living life by going along to get along. What elements of the story did you need his character to fulfill? So I'm going to take it back to when I was first pitching this story. And I had just gotten off this writing project and I was very tired of writing things for other people and I wanted my own dreams to come true. So I was like, okay, Leah, what do you want to write that is all yours? So I took the elements of what if Lolita were Halloween Mike Myers babysitter when he was a little kid? And Dr. Loomis is like, Mike Myers is just evil. 
There's no other function. There's no other mystery behind it. This is just an evil entity, right? Mm -hmm. And so the parents function towards what that evil entity is, is you have the mother who is always trying to protect him. And then you have the father who wants to abandon him into a psych ward. I think what they're fighting against is on either side of that dichotomy. Okay. All right. Trying to think if I have anything else to throw at you before I move on to some other things. Because if I keep on going, I guarantee you I'll be eliciting spoiler after spoiler I'm, after spoiler. And it's, it's hard not to because that's all the juicy bits, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially if you want to get into the psychology of a character, you can't really question their motivations for what they do without saying what it is they do. <laughs> yeah. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you about. I looked in your bio and you were a film projectionist for 10 years. Yeah. Now I had wanted to do that so bad when I was a kid that I had gotten my mom to get one of her friends that used to work at the local dollar cinema to get a guy. She knew that still worked there this guy, Ricky, who I thought was just cool as hell mm -hmm. to take us up to the room, you know, to see how everything worked. And this was 1988. So it was actual film and it was one big room because there were only four theaters in this dollar cinema and they were side by side. Yeah. So we were just walking from one projector to the other. And uh, I remember Iron Eagle and Big, the movie mm -hmm. with Tom Hanks, were the ones that were playing at the time. So, yeah. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about where you worked and what the experience was like? Yeah. So I worked on the East Coast. I worked in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. And the last stint that I did was on an island off of Rhode Island. And I lived inside of the movie theater and I was the projectionist and manager. And it was just, you mentioned there were four in one room. Mm -hmm. The last place that I worked at had one, but I worked in upwards of 20, which is insane. Mm -hmm. And it was also film and transitioning into digital later on. And it was a blast. It was so much fun. Nice. You said you lived in one of the... Yeah, they had a back okay. room. So it was a theater that used to be an actual stage theater. And they had dressing rooms in the back in the connecting hallway that connect both of the dressing rooms on either side of the stage. And they had kind of outfitted one into a bedroom. It had a bed and a desk and a dresser and had all of these posters still up from the 1940s and the 1930s advertising plays that had come through. And it used to be, <laughs> it used to be a roller skating rink. So I don't think it was part of UNESCO, but it was definitely a historical building. Mm. Yeah. We have this place here in Houston called the River Oak Cinema. Mm -hmm. And I do not know if it survived COVID. I have oh. not been down. I haven't been down that way. It was uh, built in 35, I think. I mean, it was like an actual theater where I think they saw live productions so the curtain is still there. Wow. And then, you know, like curtain stage, all that, and the big screen is over it. And that's where they show all like the big stuff that draws a lot of people. Upstairs where the balcony was has been renovated into, I want to say, two or three different small theaters. And that's where they show all the uh, foreign mm -hmm. films or mm -hmm. indie films, stuff like that. And I don't know if it survived. I've really oh. got to look into that. <laughs> it's, it's heartbreaking because after 2015, which is when the final transition from film and digital happened across the nation in the United States, a lot of those places you saw them doing Kickstarters to try to afford the $50,000 digital camera and projector. And some of them didn't. Some of them just went defunct. Yeah. It's sad. 
What is it like going from film to digital? Because I remember seeing film, I mean, like the exit feed, I don't know what you would call it, the spent film. Yeah. It was going into this like big metal tower that was multi-level where it was getting mm -hmm. all rolled up. Yeah. Are you asking the function of the physical or what it looks like on screen? Yeah, like the projector. Like it seemed like there was a lot of working with film when you had film. Mm -hmm. When you transition over to digital, is it just a matter of you know, working at a computer? Or? It's hard drives. Okay. Yeah. It's you. And the reason the transition happened is because it's cheaper to ship a hard drive as opposed to film. Like film, it's $5,000 to ship and a hard drive is like 500. So mm. it was purely based on that fact. And the hard drive, like computer hard drive, you get it, you put it into the digital projector and it digests it. Film came in those silver hexagon mm -hmm. cans. Yeah. Old school. Yeah. And you got reels. You had about six to eight reels for a regular timed film. And then if you do something like Pearl Harbor, you get 12 reels mm -hmm. and they're 20 minutes each. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And didn't you have to actually add the movie trailers and advertisements and we stuff? We did. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. We added the trailers. We were required to add certain trailers at the beginning of certain studio films because it's all trying to promote what they have coming up next. Mm -hmm. We had to keep a log book of all of them and get six trailers at the top, usually of every film. And as the film came out, you had to go in and take that trailer off. Mm -hmm. And what was really fun about being a projectionist was, and I didn't use this power a lot, but if I was ever going to be late <laughs> to a film, uh -huh. I would, I would text or I would call the projectionist on duty uh -huh. and I'd be like, give me five more minutes. And they would delay starting the film for me. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> That's power. You could reach out and alter objective reality. Like, yeah, <laughs> I bid the delay right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that was fun. And then some of the projectionists would sell the posters. You know, we get all of the film posters come in or we get the giant wall hanging ones or we get the, mm. the things that we build or the marquee little titles. They got kind of genius because it's a minimum wage job. And they're, mm. you know, some of them are high school students and they would sell those to their friends and family. So when I get to retirement age, you think they'd let me be a projectionist? <laughs> yeah. So there's still some film ones like the new Beverly here in Los uh -huh. Angeles. The Jacob Burns Center in New York is still one. I think mm. I want to say the Alamo still has one. And I know that a lot of theaters have kept 78 because Christopher Nolan releases on film and Tarantino will release on film. Mm. So they have a backup projector for when those films are that's released. That's interesting. I know. That, mm. I mean, that's power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, you alluded to it earlier when we were talking about the psychopathic aspects of Millicent. Mm -hmm. You were an investigative journalist yeah. that studied female serial killers. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of expound a little bit more on that? Well, yeah, I was an investigative journalist for the Innocence Institute in Pittsburgh under the guidance of Bill Mushi, old school reporter, great guy. Mm -hmm. And the Innocence Project was one of two in the nation, the other one being Chicago that was journalism-based. All the other Innocence Projects are lawyer-based. And so we would help exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. And we were in existence from 2001 to 2012. And after 2012, because it's a nonprofit, there was no more money. So we shut down, unfortunately. We had to give all of our case files away. But I worked on a couple cases, the most exciting of which was David Manchinsky, who was a 
low-level cocaine dealer in the 1970s and was wrongfully accused of murder. And Mushi had been on the case since the early 80s with the Post-Gazette. I sound like an Adam McKay film right now. <laughs> um, he had been on the case since the early 80s and had followed Machinsky. And then Machinsky's daughter grew up and advocated for him to get out of prison. This man had been in prison for 25 years for a crime that he didn't commit. And mm. the Innocence Institute and mainly Bill Mushi helped exonerate him. So in the cases that you dealt with, did a lot of them end up with exoneration? It's a long process. And we go through a series of steps to make sure that the person is not lying. Like the instant that any of them would lie, we couldn't do the case. Oh, okay. Because... Just about some small detail? Yeah, the whole point was the truth of the matter, right? And yeah. there were six different reasons why a person would be exonerated. It's like wrongful eyewitness testimony or like faulty science with faulty forensics. Yeah. That's scary because... Usually, it's really scary. Well, especially with faulty forensics, because usually that's what ends up exonerating people is DNA, isn't it? Yeah, but some of the cases, like the DNA stuff, didn't happen until 1994, I believe. So everything mm. before that, like that, just didn't exist. That wasn't a pathway. So you had to rely on eyewitness testimony. And then some of the times you had like a corrupt assistant district attorney who would bribe somebody to mm. say, "Yeah, I saw that person there," in order to lessen the stool pigeon sentence. Mm. We had some cases like that. Yeah, I had um, Tom O'Neill on, and he wrote that book, Chaos, and he was talking about Vincent Bugliosi prosecuting the Manson case, how corrupt he was. And I never thought of it as far as eyewitness testimony yeah. until I saw that video. I think it's from the 70s. This group of people are bouncing basketballs. And as you're trying to watch that, somebody dressed in a gorilla costume walks into the middle, beats their chest. <laughs> and they're like, all right, how many times were the balls bounced? And people give their answers. All right, who saw the gorilla? They're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. We had one guy was watching a sports game with his entire family. And he was put away for robbery because two women who were robbed said it was him. But you should have seen the guy that it was because they looked almost exactly the same. But oh. His entire family vouched him out. And they were like, he was in the living room the whole time. Wow. And he still got put away in prison. Eventually, it got exonerated. Yeah. But the guy who looked like him, I think he was all tatted up. So it was like a very different person. Wow. But those two women. So I imagine this guy had no dealings with or intersection with these women. He just happened to have like a doppelganger. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I am going to, uh, <laughs> the next person I see that looks like me, I'm going to have them shipped off somewhere. <laughs> you need to move yeah, somewhere yeah. far away. Yeah. Oh my God. For real. It's scary. That's why we, that's why you want a lawyer. Mm. That's why you don't say anything when the police ask you, mm. when they haul you in. And that's why you sell your house to get a good lawyer. Yeah, you know, an interesting thing I heard, you mentioned remaining silent, your Fifth Amendment, basically, mm -hmm. to keep from incriminating yourself. If you have a cell phone that has a biometric passcode, mm -hmm. they can force you to look at it. They can, I think, pretty much force you to use your finger. I don't know if they still have that. I think it's mostly face ID now. But you remember how you used to be able to scan your fingerprint to unlock a phone? Yeah. But if you do it with a passcode... You cannot be compelled to tell them what it is because that would be infringing on your right to remain silent. 
It's interesting. I have a friend of mine who has a friend who's a mortician Mm -hmm. and they often have like a dead person's phone that they try to open. If you, I don't know why this is interesting, but it's like a horror (laughs) podcast, right? Like if you're dead, it won't open the phone. Like there is something that happens to the eyes or the soul when it leaves the body that Mm -hmm. even with your face, it won't open the phone unless you're alive. That's interesting. Well, because there's two cameras on the front. There's one standard and then there's like this little infrared that's constantly photographing you, basically. Mm -hmm. Like if you use a a thermal imaging camera and look at a phone, you can see it like light pulsing from it, like taking random pictures, basically, to to outline your face. So I wonder if the fact that there's no heat in the body has something to do with it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Right in, audience. Let us know. <laughs> yes. All you morticians out there. Inquiring minds want to know. Yes. Well, I read something, and I, I don't know if I really understood it correctly. It said you studied film stunts, or you were involved in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was on set in Pittsburgh, and one of the stunt guys at the table that we all ate at for like 16 weeks or whatever invited everyone down to come train with his family. And I was the only one who said yes. I was in my 20s. I had 200 bucks in my pocket. I packed everything that I owned into my Honda Civic and I moved down to Virginia. Nice. I lived with him and his family for about nine months. And they were on America's Got Talent, Alex Piles and Dean Piles. Mm -hmm. And Alex, who I think she was nine at the time, held the Guinness Book of World Records of youngest person to repel from the highest height. So she repelled on stage 90 feet. I don't remember how high it was, but it was very high. Mm Kind of cool. I am not great at film stunts (laughs) by any means. We trained a lot and it just, what it did was it made me respect the art form. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm on set and I'm directing a film, I will often give my stunt man or stunt woman the power to yell cut or action during those scenes because it's a high risk scene. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want anybody to get hurt. The number one thing about my film set is safety. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a safety thing. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's helped me as a writer know what kicks and action stuff to put into action Mm -hmm. lines. So I feel like I remember hearing, I think it was a guy that I used to work with that worked as a set medic. He said that the stunt performers, I guess you would call them, Mm -hmm. they get paid by the day and not per stunt? I think it depends. Okay. Because there are certain stunts that are the highest paid stunts. Like the guy on a motorcycle on top of a train while it's moving and he's going from boxcar to boxcar got paid way more money mm-hmm. than somebody who is stunt coordinator for someone slapping someone's face. So it's under SAG. I think SAG rules per day for a stunt man versus what the stunt is. I think it's different. And it's negotiable. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Well, did you get a chance to participate in anything that maybe, uh, I don't know, didn't injure you, but you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's, uh, (laughs) I was, no, I was so afraid of getting punched in the face. Uh I trained, but I didn't, we didn't ever film anything. I've never been in anything for stunts. Oh, okay. But that I did falls and I did hits and we practiced Piles Valley Tudo but I never did anything with it. I just used it as an educational tool. Now, are you talking about getting punched in the face by accident or when they're doing fight scenes, do they actually make some sort of contact? Well, so 
the gym that I was at did two different things. They did stunts, but they also did like MMA stuff. And I was just too afraid. <laughs> well, you also have a master's degree in creative writing. I have two master's degrees. Oh, okay. One in creative writing and... And one in journalism. And journalism. Okay, gotcha. Well, out of those two degrees, what drew you to screenwriting as opposed to other forms of writing? Right. So I got my journalism degree as a function to be a better screenwriter because a lot of the filmmakers whose stuff that I love mm -hmm. started out as journalists like Ben Hecht or... Gillian Flynn, Terrence Malick, they all started out as journalists. And I was like, there's something to that. There's something to understanding the human story that made them better screenwriters. Mm. Yeah. So I went and I got my MA in order to become a better screenwriter. I think it's helped. Yeah. So if you can absorb the human story, the truth is stranger than fiction, mm -hmm. then it can help you write a more compelling fictional story. Yeah. And not just that, but learning and understanding people, mm -hmm. you know, interviewing them and going through the Innocence Institute and hearing those stories and just understanding the function of a story and, and the characters in it. And then the actual, like the writing, like how to write. So you think a screenwriter that lives out in the middle of nowhere and doesn't have a lot of social contact is going to fall short when it comes to writing believable characters and so forth? No, not at all. This is just something that I did for myself. Okay. People come to writing in various ways. And one of the hardest things a writer can do is find their voice. Like there are all different paths to finding your voice. You just have to find the one that suits you. Gotcha. Well, I can understand how your journalism and creative writing degrees lead to screenwriting, but how did you get into directing? I was always afraid of it. <laughs> and I think that you should, you should do things that you're afraid of. Like I'm afraid of heights. So I took a bouldering because it's fun to conquer your fears. It's fun to look down the abyss and know that you put yourself there and you have control over wanting to be there. Uh -huh. I wanted to direct something before I turned 40 and I was kind of given the opportunity to do that. And so I took it. Awesome. I'm going to have to uh, admit my ignorance here. Did you say bouldering? Yeah. Like rock climbing. Oh, but oh. With, without the ropes. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I don't do it outside. I do it in the gym with pads. Oh, okay. So okay. You, you go high up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Do, you, do you have like a killer mechanics grip? If I shook your hand, would you take me down? <laughs> yeah. I measure it with whoever's hand I'm shaking. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to crush anyone's hand and have them have that opinion of me. <laughs> so how long have you been doing that? Since before the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. And there are levels like V0 to V, I don't know because I haven't gotten there yet, mm. but I, before the pandemic, I was V4 and now I'm back to like V2s because it's like, you have to hang on the rock with like the pads of your fingers. I know. It's, it's intense. Oh, it's so hard. The grip strength. Yeah. Well, so you conquered your fear of heights with bouldering mm -hmm. and you wanted to conquer your fear of directing. So what was it that once you attempted it for the first time, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like what aspects really drew you in? Oh, the collaboration. It is so much fun to be in a room with other creative people and you all have an idea about how the thing should go and you come together on 
the function of that idea and the execution of that idea and the final product. Amazing. Yeah. And I think it's just a matter of loving problem solving and creative problem solving. Yeah, you definitely have to be the right type of person for that. You do. <laughs> it's, sure. it's kind of like <laughs> it's, it's kind of like you're walking down the hallway and you have all of these doors in the hallway and there's a person at every door that needs an answer to something mm. and it's your job to have the answer. And I just, I love having the answer and I love the dialogue that comes with it. Nice. Well, you're also involved in production, even mm -hmm. on projects where you're not a writer or a director, you're involved in the production process. Yeah. So I went to this UCLA thing once long time ago and I was in the audience and I was listening to the award ceremony and this woman came up and she said, if your dreams only include yourself, you're not dreaming big enough. I was like, that is very true. So whenever possible, I try to help produce stuff for friends of mine um, in order to help their dreams come true because they've dedicated their time and their talents and their craft to helping my dreams come true. Or if the story is really good and I feel like that story belongs in the zeitgeist in some way, I will help produce. And it helps pay my rent, yeah. <laughs> which is always, always a good thing. Absolutely. Well, what role do you enjoy the most and which one do you normally operate in as far as producing? Oh, I, I want to say I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy the the product of it, I would say. And I, uh, I enjoy the relationships that it gives me, but producing is, it's so difficult sometimes. But I've been a production coordinator. I've been a producer. I've been a line producer, which is the money person. Um, and it all comes with different levels of stress. Uh, right now I'm working on, I'm working on two documentaries with friends of mine and we're in the pre-production stage. We're going into production on one of them in a couple of weeks. And right now it's fun, but documentaries are a little bit different than narrative film because you're dealing with true stories mm -hmm. and mostly it's B-roll and interviews. So those are kind of easy. It's like being a journalist. And I've had it explained to me before, but like if you're looking at the credits rolling at the end of a movie, mm. if you see just producer, that means that person was involved with all aspects? I would hope so. Okay. Yep. And then executive would be? Uh, it depends. Oh, man. <laughs> to get, I mean, you're asking for granular answers. Producer is involved in all of the production stuff. So organizing the team, making sure people are paid, making sure that we're on time and under budget. Mm -hmm. An executive producer could function that way. Sometimes it's just a like a token title. But when you go overseas, the executive producer is actually doing stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, it depends on the person, depends on the project, depends on the country. Gotcha. Well, which screenwriter would you say does a really good job of going outside the bounds of traditional storytelling, but somehow makes it work? Ari Aster. I mean, you watched Hereditary, right? Yeah. I don't understand why there's some people that say that's a god-awful movie. It is freaking amazing. <laughs> I loved it. If it made you afraid or made you feel anything, like watch that movie alone in a theater. Mm-hmm watch it not in a safe space or in your safe space and like don't watch it with anybody else just watch it alone and it will affect you mm -hmm. i think i love that movie i love Ari Aster. i can't wait for his next thing with joaquin phoenix that's coming out oh i haven't um i haven't seen uh watch the trailer oh, gonna, okay. it's gonna blow your mind like anytime that i can sit in an audience 
not be bored and not guess the ending or guess what's going to happen next. I am thrilled as a writer. Mm. I remember I saw Hereditary in the theater mm-hmm. and in my opinion, maybe not the best part, but close of the movie and the part of the movie that everybody just reacted to in the staggered manner mm-hmm. was when he was laying in bed, mm-hmm. the young man, I forget his name, and that perimeter light outside was going on and off, on and off. And you're just like, why am I staring at this? And then something draws your eyes up and you realize his mom is plastered to the ceiling right there in the corner. Yeah. And like, I like gripped the seat and then it was weird. It was like this staggered reaction. I heard some people start, (gasps) you know, doing that. And then it just, it was like this chain reaction. Everybody started latching onto it. It was just such a crazy um, shot, just the way he did that. I picked my feet up off the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was a great movie. Mm. Yeah, really good. Well, which director would you say evokes the biggest emotional response without dialogue or possibly even actors being part of the shot? Yimou Zhang. So you know who this person is. If you've seen the movie Hero? I don't think I have. Beautiful. But he also did. Listeners are probably cursing my name right now. (laughs) He hasn't seen Hero. He also did Raise the Red Lantern. He is like just a stunning, stunning director. House of the Flying Dragon, House of the Flying Daggers. So you asked what director without any characters in a scene. He believes in feng shui and the way that he utilizes geography, space, and color Mm -hmm. is emotionally moving. Mm. Watch Hero whenever you can. I'm not going to be like, it's the greatest movie ever. Watch it. Mm -hmm. Email me. Tell me what you think. And then... Just from a purely technical standpoint. Well, not technical, but the emotion that his technical skill at the shots produces. Yes. Everything that you want from a director, he delivers on. Awesome. Yeah. What prompted that question was I had seen a trailer by accident for some reason going through mm-hmm. my YouTube channels. Denis Villeneuve? Oh, Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Yeah, Denis. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stunning. I saw Dune and of mm-hmm. course Blade Runner Blade 2049 Runner. I liked better than the first yeah. one. And I can mention a lot of spots in 2049, but especially in Dune. And I saw this at the IMAX, those massive shots where the middle of the desert you see these crazy aircraft the soundtrack everything i just remember like being overcome with like i couldn't even put a name on the emotion i didn't know what i was feeling i was just overcome with whatever (laughs) indescribable emotion it was yeah radical dissonance i think is the term it's a poetic term that means that you're faced with at once your i guess smallness in Mm -hmm. the scheme of the world Mm -hmm. And your connection to it. Radical dissonance. Dissonance. It's like when you stand and you see the northern lights for the first time. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Radical Mm -hmm. dissonance. Well, speaking of directors, I wanted to talk to you about your short films. And I hope I'm coming at these in a sort of linear order. Uh, I wanted to begin with Laundry Day. Laundry Day was a while ago. I won a couple of awards. It's a fan film. I co-wrote it with my buddy Josh, and he directed it. And I can't tell you what it's about because I don't want to spoil it. You have to watch it. But mm-hmm. it's about a boy and a girl 
meeting in a laundromat. Okay. And how about the toll? So the toll is upcoming. It's one that I'm doing with Streetlamp Media, who is the production company behind it. And then my buddy Nate is in it. And then my girl Haley, who I work on so many different projects. And I want to tell you the A-list actor that I have for it, but they haven't signed the contract no. yet. So don't want to jinx that. Can't tell you, <laughs> but I'll tell you after. And it's kind of exciting. Oh, sweet. Yeah. But they'll be playing death. Oh, okay. So the toll, are you directing? I wrote it. I'm directing. Yeah. Wrote and direct. Okay. So you mentioned a production company. I assume you mm -hmm. were involved in pitching that to the production company and all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is that like? That seems like it could Scary be. Scary and awful. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah. I've interviewed some people that do like Kickstarters and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but I've only interviewed, I think, two people that were involved in movies that involved uh, production companies and one didn't have anything to do with the pitch. So like, I mean, how do you yeah. sell yourself or sell your so, product? Basically. I love that you asked this because I did the Sundance thing last year and they focus on pitching and how to pitch. And then my creative partner, Angel and I were like, well, we need to make this into something because there's not a repository. There's nowhere that you can really go that has a formula for this is exactly how you pitch and you get your thing made. So we got together and made a podcast called Pitch Podcast. Oh. And it has two different functions. The first function is a premium feed that has writers pitching their material. It tells you, you know, why we wrote this thing, who I am, why specifically me, pitches the story. And then we do the first three pages are acted by SAG actors. So we have a small little like radio play. And then the second part of the podcast is free. And we interview different industry professionals, agents, managers, creative people, screenwriters about how to pitch, why it's important to know how to pitch, what not to do when you pitch. <laughs> and we just interviewed Liz Hanna, who wrote The Post mm. and Longshot and The Girl from Plainville and was doing Mindhunter. You know, not busy at all. <laughs> In hopes to be a repository for screenwriters to go to to learn or to be a repository for agents, managers, producers, creative executives to go to, to hear about new pitches. Awesome. I think so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go into these situations, you kind of have a plan of attack, a template, so to speak. I do. As a matter of fact, I have a list of things that I include on a pitch on my wall, just to practice. Oh, okay. Well, how about the last battle? The Last Battle I wrote and I directed is a short film that we did last year starring my girl Haley again, <laughs> who just had something, I think, released on Amazon. Haley Lipscomb. You check out. She's really good. Mm -hmm. And my creative partner, Angel, is in it. And I love to work with these team of female crew <laughs> and filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And I work with them all of the time for everything. Mm -hmm. They're my people. And it's about... A man who wants a divorce and a woman who doesn't want a divorce. And then they flip at the end. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Drama, high drama. And it's simple. I like it when it's simple because it's one person wants something. The other person doesn't want that thing. Hmm. Tension. What about, oh God, I'm going to butcher this. I apologize. Can in we advance. say it? Yeah, what? you say it. <laughs> Which one? Uh, Teatro. <laughs> Teatro del Amore. Yeah. So Teatro del Amore is, my Love Letter to Cinema. I wrote it. It placed somewhere in the nickels, maybe. 
I don't remember. Anyway, I went location scouting in Italy for it last year. I mean, it has some funding. It has some cast attached to it already. I'd love to film it this year in Italy in Sestri Levanti or Rome or both of those places. And it's loosely based on my life as a film projectionist living on that island. So it's about this woman who is going through the worst heartbreak of her life. Mm-hmm. And she's getting life and dating advice from her imaginary friend, Italian film icon, Marcello Mastriani, who is also in love with her. Mm-hmm. But because he's imaginary, they can never touch and she doesn't love him back. And he's pining for something that he can never have. And she's just trying to mend her heart. And she's a film projectionist. She's a film manager. And it's the last year of 35 millimeter. Mm. And it has all of the stars in it. Like, um, I wrote Paul Newman in it and Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Sydney Portier is in it. Charlie Chaplin is in it. It looks like it's going to get made because we have initial funding and that's always the hardest part. So we're just looking for the rest of it mm. right now. Yeah. So it's a love letter. Does it deal with a sense of loss? Like she lives in this kind of fantasy world that's tied into the context of film or of movies on film and it's giving way to digital? Yeah. So it functions in two ways. So if you watch a film on digital and then you watch the same film on actual film, Mm -hmm. I can see a difference. I would like to think that other people can see a difference. They just don't know what is lacking. So a digital projection is flatter. It has less depth and it has less light. It's like taking a picture of the Mona Lisa and then instead of looking at the Mona Lisa, you're looking at the Polaroid. And so it's a love letter to actual film. And it talks about how film is the light, the love and the heart of filmmaking because you can see it. It's tactile. It's visceral Mm -hmm. as opposed to what digital is. And it's this woman transitioning into understanding what her heart wants and what her heart needs and how to mend it and how she has to accept that she's worthy of love. And you were talking about there's more light with actual film. Wasn't it common that sometimes film got overheated and burned up? So that was nitrate film. Yeah, it's a polyester blend now. You can still have it. Like I still had it. If a film gets stuck in the projector for whatever reason and it stops moving, that light is so hot that it will burn through that film. Oh, so it's got to stay moving so it's not concentrated in any one area. Like a shark. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. like uh, the analogy you made to Mona Lisa being the actual painting or being on film, kind of like Mm -hmm. reading a Kindle or having a physical book. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, I don't know what it is about physical books for me. Maybe it's because I'm constantly straining my eyes on screens doing podcasting Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But uh, I just feel like I get lost and don't really have a good sense of where I am in a book if I'm looking at it digitally. I'm going to have to... uh, Well, I don't know how I would do that. I was about to say I'm going to have to experiment with watching a film on digital and uh, watching an actual film. But uh, I don't know if any place that plays those survived COVID around here anyway. Yeah, you would have to go. I think the Alamo still has some. So you're in Mm -hmm. Houston. You'd have to drive to Austin. Yeah. Well, it's like three hours. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Road trip. Road trip. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. So last, Calliope. Oh, Calliope. Yeah, that's supposed to be upcoming. It's something that I wrote for a friend of mine, Tilda Del Toro, mm-hmm. who's in a bunch of stuff, and she is such a talented actress. Like, watch her, watch her, because she's up and coming. 
she's going to direct it. I wrote it, that I wrote it back in 2016. And she's just sitting on it, waiting for, I think, the right moment or the right inspiration to come back to it. Hmm. Well, which film are you the most proud of? And can you describe what it felt like the first time you saw it screened with other people? Oh, my goodness. So I think those are separate things. I'm proud of all of them, of course, for different reasons. Mm -hmm. I directed my first feature film in the light of the moon, which is a retelling of Beowulf, but it's like, it's an art house horror. It's kind of a B movie, Mm -hmm. but I'm so super proud of it. And we filmed it in eight days in the redwood forest during COVID. (laughs) So we all slept in the same cabin and we just made art happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm really super proud of that. It hasn't come out yet. And then I'm also like for different reasons, I'm proud of. I wrote this short film and I directed it called Good Girl. It's an art house horror. And it was an all-female, non-binary casting crew, even the post. And it was very difficult to find a lot of female or non-binary or post because they're just not given the same opportunities. Like finding my VFX artist was like very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I found her, Ivy, Ivy Lau. And then I'm proud of the documentaries. Like my friend, Nathan Echo, mm-hmm. Nate Echo, He is doing this documentary called The Return. And it's if you're a history buff, you're going to love this. His grandfather was in World War II in the Philippines. And all the Japanese soldiers had a flag of the country that was signed by their prefecture. Mm -hmm. And their friends and their family wrote a bunch of stuff on it. And a lot of American soldiers would take those flags as a memento. And so... Nathan's grandfather took that flag, folded it up, and kept it in a drawer for 77 years. He said, I don't want it translated. I don't want anything done with it until I pass away. Mm-hmm. So he passed away and Nathan inherited it. And he knew instantly that it didn't belong to him and that he needed to find the family and give it back to them. Wow. So we're doing a documentary about returning that flag to the fallen soldier's family. Wow. Yeah, so wow. powerful stuff, like <laughs> culture-mending stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's through... Life is My Movie, which is a documentary film company that I've worked with a lot in the past. And then I'm doing another documentary with my creative partner, Angel, called After the Fade. And it pairs with the podcast that I produce that he hosts called Before the Fade. Mm-hmm. And it's all about like your favorite music and what happens after the music fades. Because you know, a lot of those radio edits, the guy is just wailing on his saxophone and suddenly it cuts like, what happened in the recording studio with the rest of that song? And we've interviewed Bob Brockman, who is a Oscar winning, Grammy winning music producer. He did stuff with the Fugees. He did stuff with Eminem, a whole bunch of people. We interviewed Prince's sound engineer, Susan Rogers. We interviewed one of the Temptations, Cornelius Grant. Mm-hmm. We interviewed somebody from Tower of Power. It should be good. So we're getting that thing up and running. And Angel is a jazz musician whose father was well-known in the jazz world in Chicago in the 1940s. Mm. So it'll be interesting to pair like fatherhood and what we pass down generation musically and otherwise. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. So I'm proud of all of the things that I've done <laughs> that I've done and helped supported my friends to make. Okay. Was there a uh, a first time anything in particular that you watched a movie screened where it was just like Yeah, so Spoonful of Sugar premiered at Fantastic Fest. Mm. And so we were at Fantastic Fest this past year mm. and it screened there and it was a dream of mine. Nice. Come true. Yeah, I was there with my friends, Katrina Mercedes, who Mercedes directed and Katrina produced and Vanishing Angle, Matt and Adley were there. It was great to have everybody involved in that project there watching the film together in a movie theater. 
there's just some magic to it, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's why I want to know what that feels like. It feels, <laughs> in, it feels incredible. Radical dissonance. I wish you could bottle that up. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that what I saw on your Instagram page? Did you post Maybe. pictures of that? Yeah. Is it the pink picture? Yeah. I pink so. in the background? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, what is your writing medium and atmosphere? And maybe I'm comparing apples to oranges. Just usually when I interview people that are like writing novels, they have to have, you know, some write on old typewriters, some write on laptops, and they have to have a particular atmosphere. Yeah. Are you writing with software that formats it in a particular way? Or do you just kind of? Mm. So my process for every script starts with a blank page mm -hmm. and it's either notes on my phone mm -hmm. or it's Microsoft Word because I think so fast I've got to get it down. Like mm -hmm. I type 120 words a minute. Like I've got to go. I can't do that. I can't do this. <laughs> I do this for poetry. I don't do it for screenwriting. And I love as quiet as possible. Mm -hmm. I wear these noise-canceling headphones a lot. I think that's just an ADHD thing. Mm -hmm. But the places that I really like to write are either in my bedroom or oddly in my car in the back seat. In your car. I'll, I'll drive. There's this cemetery here that uh -huh. I'm not going to say because I don't want hounded, but there's a cemetery <laughs> in Los Angeles that I go to and there's a quiet spot in the cemetery. I'll park there and I'll write. There's places over at Griffith Park that I'll sit in my back seat and write. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but that's where I find my magic. I can see that. Yeah. I have a dream, Vincent. I have a dream right. of somebody else. Lay it on me. I, somebody else driving. <laughs> cross country, one coast to the next coast. And I just get to sit in the back seat and write while they're driving. So if you were in one of those self-driving cars, would you? Oh, it'd be great. Okay. So you would be able to relax enough to concentrate. <laughs> yeah. I ignore everything else. Okay. Um, there's just, I think there's something about movement and you're right. Writers are quirky. Like I can write longhand for a poem mm -hmm. and I have to only do it on one single page without any lines. I can't turn the page over and keep writing it. Trumbo wrote in his bathtub yeah. was, um, because his back was bad, not have a bad back. So that was true. That wasn't just for the movie I saw. No, that's true. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We're a weird bunch. <laughs> and I'm a projectionist too. So I'm like double, uh -huh. I've got double weirdness. <laughs> well, okay. Speaking of weirdness. What is the strangest way you've ever gotten a story idea? Oh my gosh. I mean, so many story ideas come when you're not sitting down and thinking of it. You're like trying to focus on something else. Everything is a story idea. I think a lot of writers come up with ideas in the shower. And I often, <laughs> I often think about Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. Like he came up with a flux capacitor because he fell off his toilet and he banged his head. Yeah. I'm like, of course, of course, that's how it happens. <laughs> I'm waiting for my flux capacitor moment, I suppose. Uh, we don't want you to get injured. <laughs> well, you know, writing is pain. Yeah. So. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, do you do any film editing? I learned recently. Okay. Yeah. So you can look at my director's reel on YouTube. I edited that. It's a lot of fun to learn to have better language ability to talk with my editor, but I hated it. <laughs> God bless their patience. Yeah, I was um, watching an interview with Quentin Tarantino, and you know he's mm -hmm. kind of an auteur. He does the editing, the directing, the writing, and so on. And he was just basically breaking down all the steps. And then he's like, and then I go into the editing room, and it takes about three months. I was like, wow. Yeah, it takes a long time. It takes double 
or triple what you think it will take. Yeah. Well, I've never edited film, but I've edited podcasts and it takes, I mean, a one hour podcast, just audio, you know, takes, yes. <laughs> takes uh, quite a few hours to do. And I can't even imagine how much film I know. is shot that you have to sift through. <laughs> I know. And I won't even touch sound like sound is a whole different beast. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. No, I have a sound woman, Vicki Sampson. She's great. <laughs> Thank you, Vicky. <laughs> what do they call that? Sound design? Is that you the... do a sound design? Yeah. Yeah. Sound mixer. Yeah. Okay. Well, what would you say would be the most productive path for an aspiring filmmaker to take? If they're at square one, the drawing board, like where does their yeah. path begin? Yeah. It depends on what they want to do. And for me, I like to know a little bit about everything for every department. Mm -hmm. So just get yourself on a film set. Experience is the best educator. Do stuff with your friends. You have a phone. Mm -hmm. Use your phone. Film something. Edit something. Do it again. Keep doing it. Find somebody who wants to invest in your project. It's the best way to get good. You don't have to move to LA. You don't have to have anything fancy. You just have to have a good story. And I think there's a lot to be said about sound. Like the sound quality of something matters. Mm -hmm right? You're in the podcast world, mm -hmm. sound matters, oh. um, and the music matters, and then of course the performance, but just get out there and just do it. So you said, get yourself on a film set. If you're relatively young, are there like intern positions that? Oh, uh, well, make your own film set. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know? <laughs> yeah. Was it Spielberg was filming stuff when he was eight? Yeah. Everybody can do it now. Yeah. And you're, you're just going to get better. You're not going to be great at the start. Don't expect that. Get mm. rid of that notion, like toxic perfectionism. Ignore that. Whatever you're going to do, it's going to be a lesson for you. And that's the point. Mm. And then do the next one mm. and then keep doing it. Like Tarantino, you mentioned, he said the first thing that he did took him forever to do. And then he watched it. He's like, well, this is shit. <laughs> so he did it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then reading scripts. John August has an app called Weekend Read, W-K-N-D. Mm. It's free. You can opt for the premium for like $7. That just buys the app outright. You can read all the Oscar winning, Oscar contending scripts over the past decade or something. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. Reading scripts is very helpful. Well, what is the life of Leah St. Marie like outside of writing, producing, and directing? Climbing and facing my fears. <laughs> Just going at it full on beast mode. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Juggernaut. Well, what do you do when you need a mental reboot from adulting? Oh, I swim. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a swimming place in Los Angeles that has a heated pool. It sounds really fancy, but it doesn't cost like hardly anything. Mm. A couple bucks and I go swimming. Okay. Because I'm not allowed to have my phone in the water. <laughs> yeah is it like just kind of lounging or are you swimming laps yes lap swim oh okay gotcha yeah yeah it's a laned pool okay yeah it's supposed to be really good for your back too i should probably get into that you should definitely do that then mm -hmm. it's wonderful i was in a car accident i had to relearn to walk and Ooh. i did water therapy and it really helped wow yeah and it's fun you know it's water it gives mm -hmm. you life yeah Good cardio, too, I imagine. <laughs> Very good cardio. Mm -hmm. Well, Leah, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. 
as we uh, bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers and readers know about? Yeah, actually. All right. So I have this grindhouse script that I wrote that Mercedes and Katrina Mercedes, who directed Spoonful and Katrina, who helped produce it, Mm -hmm. want to be involved in this project. And it's a a grindhouse film. So you know what grindhouse is like sexploitation. Yeah. And it's called Psych House. And are we allowed to swear? Fuck yeah. Okay. (laughs) So it's about this, it's about this girl. It's an all female cast, all female non-binary. Even the dog is female. So it's about this woman, Jack Bunny, Jack Bunny, who has to rescue her sister Kit Kat from a demented psychotherapist who has an all-girls school who has been dosing the girls with id pills, ID. So if you're like a nympho before you take the pill, then you take the pill and you're like times a thousand nympho. Oh. So Jack Bunny has to rescue her sister Kit Kat in this house, but she has to dodge being fucked, killed, or eaten. <laughs> I'm down. When is it coming out? When are we doing this? I know. I know. <laughs> I think I think we need to make it in France. Oh, yeah. Are you waiting on financing or? Yeah, we need financing. Okay. Yeah. But it's super grungy, super grindhouse. And there's not a lot of female directors in the grindhouse. In fact, I can't even think of one. Mm. So having Mercedes, having a female director direct a grindhouse film is yeah. like revolutionary. Yeah. yeah. Look forward to that. Well, yeah. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Leah, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. Make sure to check out Spoonful of Sugar, now streaming on Shudder, and to follow Leah on all of her social media, which is linked in the description. I'll see you next Tuesday with yet another screenwriter of yet another amazing film. So be sure to stay tuned. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Drifting, and the day starts coming. Coloring, wondering, eyes are mine to run in. Shifting, in the garden humming. And the roots are tangling, our hearts are butterflies. I'm serving Why carry on?